This is an RNZ podcast. A quick warning. This podcast includes allegations of child sexual abuse, so listener discretion is advised. If any of the details are triggering, please talk to someone. If you're in New Zealand, you can call or text 1737 to speak with a trained professional. So you're pretty much getting daily visitors? Oh, yeah. Is that exhausting? This is measuring. Smidring. This is measuring. Now, I met Peter Ellis numerous times for this podcast, five, six, probably even more than that, mostly at his home at the beach north of Christchurch. The last couple of times, though, he was in hospice care. You've been eating too many, um... What? Too much food away from home. Why? Well, have I put on kilos? You look a little rounder on the face. Uh-oh. That's not flattering. Peter was still sharp, still joking, I hope. Hello. Sorry to pop Peter. Yeah, how are you? I just have to check your rubbish. And do you have enough towels? I do and I do. My <laughs> rubbish is in that towel. I'll do that. In this one? No, no, I was told I had to go on that one. Okay, I'll just empty it and then I'll work Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. It's not been long since he was diagnosed with bladder cancer and told it was terminal. From my memory, it was all down to pain management now. There's nothing else you need? No. Spot on, thank you, Jane. Thank you very much. That's alright. How long have you been here now? By this stage, Peter didn't have a lot of energy. I can see the fight has nearly left him, but then this is a guy who's been fighting for nearly 30 years. He's probably spent half his life preparing for court cases or actually in court, trying to clear his name. Even now, right at the end, there's another big court case looming. The fight's still going on. But it's the first one, back in 1993 in the High Court at Christchurch, that changed the course of Peter Ellis's life. I'm Ali Jones. And I'm Alexander Beezer, and this is Conviction, Episode 9, Twists. One child's been um, sleeping under the bed for fear that Peter might come and get her. Is there any chance that you've convinced yourself that this didn't happen? No, I have a clear conscience. My belief is that these young people, given time, will be able to tell their own truth of what really happened to them. I mean, it seems to me one of the worst things you can do is find someone guilty of a crime if it's based on evidence that shouldn't have gone in. I don't think we can overstate how big this case was. In 1993, the entire country was watching. The 11-week-long depositions hearing piqued the public's interest. Then the four women were discharged, leaving Peter Ellis to go to trial alone. I was working in a newsroom, and I remember the crews coming back each day, and it was a bit like watching a circus and being surprised at what was happening. Nothing was clear and nothing was sure. For a long time, Peter Ellis was kept out of the media, but eventually his defence team decided that the public needed to hear from him, and an interview was arranged with TV3 investigative journalist Melanie Reid. Are you a paedophile? No, I'm not a paedophile. Have you ever had sexual relations with young children? No, I've never had a sexual relationship with young children, and the thought is abhorrent. Are you lying? No, I'm not lying. I offered to do a lie detector test right at the very beginning and I was informed it doesn't happen in New Zealand. I would quite willingly take a lie detector test. 
He continues telling Melanie Reed about the preparations for the trial. My hair has been cut short. I'm wearing a tie, neckties in court. Now this is a man who lived in sweatpants and woolen jumpers in the cold Christchurch winters and shorts and t-shirts throughout the summers. I remember various lovely friends running off to op shops to get him conservative clothes and jackets. This is Susanna. She taught the Taha Māori program at the Civic Crash when Peter worked there too. To make him look more, you know, more respectable. I know that sounds awful, doesn't it? But funnily enough, during that period of time, he grew up a lot. I know that sounds a funny thing to say. I mean, we're the same age. He went from being a startled rabbit to showing some real kind of courage and some class. There's a great line in A City Possessed, Lindley Hood's book about the civic crash case, where Peter wondered whether adding a headband and leg warmers to his outfit would have created a better impression. But it's obviously a joke, especially because presiding over the trial was one Justice Neil Williamson. Justice Williamson died in 1996, less than three years after the trial, so we've turned to some of his peers to help give us a picture of what he was like. New Zealand's Chief Justice, Dame Sean Elias, said he was regarded as, I quote, a model of what a judge should be. He was modest, committed, straight as a die, a very sound lawyer who was also deeply engaged in the life of the community and a man of infectious optimism. And Sir Thomas Eichelbaum, another renowned judge, a man who would later lead a government inquiry into the Ellis case, said of Williamson, he had exceptional gifts of judgment, integrity and humanity. He conducted many of the most difficult trials of his time and he did so impeccably. But Neil was much more than an outstanding judge. Much of his extra-legal activity was devoted to church and community work and other good causes. Judge Williamson was a devout Catholic. Like Melanie Reed, journalist Martin van Bainen covered the story extensively over the years. So, given that their worldview is hell and heaven and the work of Satan and all that sort of stuff, I could see how it could fit into their sort of worldview. Google Williamson's name and an obituary on the Law Society website pops up. It describes him as Catholic first, then husband, father, friend, lawyer, in that order. And to be fair, he had a, um, had a reputation as being a, a lovely man. And I didn't know this at the time, but afterwards I heard that you know, his family would take in children, wayward kids and look after them. I didn't realise all that. I'd, he was highly regarded as, as being a, a very caring man. I, I didn't know much about him. In those days, you know, you didn't, the judiciary were regarded as, you know, gods. Ross Francis is a legal scholar and independent researcher and has written about the case. I was interested to hear his thoughts on Justice Williamson. He probably was of the view that the children should be believed um, and he may have even been aware that for a long time the criminal justice system had not taken the issue of child sexual abuse very seriously and so there may have been an element of, of wanting to remedy that situation and that there ought to be more convictions for, for sex offences against children. So Williamson was kind, well regarded, but probably not the judge Peter Ellis and his legal team would have hoped for. If you talk about perfect firestorms, a, you know, a Catholic judge who had been trying to prosecute child abuse cases, it wasn't a good person to end up in front of. Oh, I, Christ, I'd have hated to be in his shoes. 
poor bastard was terrified. This is Reese. He's a crash parent and friend of Peter's. He did pretty well, but um, he he's not he was not a man designed for um, the public frontage. Um, he, 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 you know, like I mean, most people try and get up on stage or something like this, and it's too much. You know, they're not used to um, dealing with a large audience or anything like this. So that's scary enough. And then he's pretty public enemy number one, and he's in front of everybody. I mean, he looked terrified and bewildered, wondering how the hell could he get there. Prosecuting the case for the Crown was Chris Longy as the junior barrister, and Brent Stanaway as the lead. Stanaway is retired now and wasn't keen to take part. Longy is still working and I met him, bumped into him and we talked about it. So I was hopeful he'd speak to me, but after a bit back and forth, he too turned me down. For us, it means we have to rely on others who were there in court back in 1993. People like Liz and Doug, whose daughters attended the crash. They saw Brent Stanaway in action. Yeah, he's, he's a heavyweight. He's, mm. he's, he's thorough. He's, he, he, he doesn't usually lose. <laughs> So no, it was a bizarre, you know. Mm. It was going to be tough to beat. Mm. He was. I would say he was a very formidable... Um, mm. He certainly had presence. Yes, mm. he did. Physically and, you know, he was just in command, really. Mm. Paula had similar impressions of him. He was, yeah, very suave, very clever, uh, had seemed to me to hold the power in his hands, really. And he was doing his job well, really well. Now remember Peter Ellis had lawyer Rob Harrison in his corner. Harrison had graduated in 1987. He'd done a stint in a Timaru law firm before moving to Dunedin in 1990, and then on to Christchurch where he opened his own practice later that year. So in 1993, he'd only been out of law school for six years. Queen's counsel Nigel Hampton, who was advising the defence in the background, was worried going into the trial that the legal teams were mismatched. It's an issue that in legal circles is called the equality of arms. So in terms overall of experience, the Crown had a far more experienced pair than the defence did. And of course, equality of arms, easy to say, and easy to say, oh, there are two for the Crown and two for the defence. But the Crown has behind its two lawyers. Well, it's got the state resources behind it. And it's got a large team of investigating officers, claimed experts who've been part of the case right from the start, so that the invested resources of the Crown will far outweigh the, um, the resources of the defence. Rob Harrison was aware of all this, you might remember from the last episode, that he'd requested legal aid to have the more experienced Hampton in court with him, but he's been turned down twice. What sort of coffee do you like? Uh, flat white, if I may. Yeah, you may. Not a problem. I just have to put this on. I'm having coffee with retired High Court Judge Sir Graham Pankhurst. He became involved in the Ellis case in the mid-90s. I saw Peter last night. Where is he? Peter has moved into a um, hospice. Is he really quite close? Later in life, Sir Graham would go on to preside over the retrial of murder-accused David Bain and lead the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the Pike River mine disaster in which 29 men died. Talking to him helped me really understand the New Zealand legal process. He believes the fact that the charges against the women were dropped was significant. 
Neil Williamson found a basis upon which to uh, withdraw the charges against them, leaving Peter alone to go to trial. And that made a fundamental difference because it had the effect of taking out of the picture uh, a whole lot of equally bizarre allegations made against the woman. It would have been a a completely different trial uh, had there, there been a trial of everybody together. On Monday the 26th of April 1993, the High Court at Christchurch convened for the trial of Peter Hugh McGregor Ellis. First up was the jury selection. We were looking for some educated people. This is Rob Harrison, Peter's lawyer. Because we were thinking, right, you know, educated people will be able to see and understand some of the concepts that we were wanting to put forward to them. Well, when I say educated, I'm talking tertiary educated. The only educated person was that blessed minister. Um, so uh, I remember him uh, being there. I remember a number of women I couldn't describe really any of them. Is there the process like in the movies where you get 20 people represented, you can check them out and say, no, no you? No, so we can, we can um, poll, uh, we can uh, check our jury by looking at their names and addresses and occupations that are on a piece of paper. You can, uh, nowadays, routinely, we would also feed their name into Google or whatever and see if we can find out what their passions are. But back in 93, there was no Google. So you're looking, you, we, we were looking for, you know, it's, you know, you judge someone in 30 seconds, you know, as they're walking towards the box, what do you think about this person? You know, whether they, whether they look as if they are prepared, you know, people's lives are written on their faces. Mm. Roughly 100 potential jurors were summoned for duty that week. Anyone with a close relationship with any witness was asked to advise the court. You were asked, do you have any connections with? So there's at least two liars on that jury. It's a big call to say two of the jurors were lying. So let's dig into this. The day after jury selection, one juror advised the court of a potential conflict. She said her flatmate worked with the mother of a complainant child. However, this wasn't a problem for Justice Williamson. He didn't consider the relationship close enough to cause concern, and the woman was allowed to stay. But years later, it turned out there was more to it, as investigative reporter Melanie Reid discovered in 1997. This jury member was living in a lesbian relationship. Her partner worked in a small Christchurch building and shared the same office. In fact, she sat across the desk from a complainant child's mother. What's more, the child in this case was the Crown's most credible witness, and her mother also gave evidence against Peter Ellis. So the juror's partner worked closely with a complainant's mother. In that news item, Nigel Hampton told Reid, knowing this earlier could have changed the whole direction of the trial. Who can tell now what significance that would have had in terms of influencing other jury members as to the believability, the credibility, the acceptability of the evidence of this particular child? I am quite sure from what uh, I am now told about it that that would have led to a stopping of the trial and of starting again. Now, the second juror who, in Peter's opinion, lied to the court was, in fact, the foreman. Though this was a more distant connection, he'd officiated at Brent Stanaway's wedding some 17 years earlier. 
Well, he didn't raise this in court and neither did Stanaway. It didn't come to light until sometime later. And who knows what impact that would have had. But there was another issue with the foreman, and this was much more serious. But the things about the jury only came out afterwards. What, what came out afterwards? The, that the jury foreman was having erotic thoughts about children and needed counselling during the trial. Well, after hearing that from Martin, I talked to Peter about it. I had heard today that the foreman of the jury got basically seemingly therapy during the process. Yes, by Karen Zebes. Karen gave him therapy. Oh, yes. Oh. Well, she's done, done, she out now gave him therapy, but he went and saw her and explained his problem, that he'd had an erection. So the foreman went to Karen Zelas and explained that he'd got an erection while hearing evidence about the abuse of children. She was professional enough to turn around and tell him, you know, he had to go get help elsewhere. But she wasn't professional enough to tell anyone that, that, that he had had more than a passing interest. We don't know, but maybe she felt a professional obligation as a counsellor to treat this revelation as confidential. We did invite her to give us her recollections of the case and these moments, but she wasn't interested in going over it again. And like we said, most of these things came out after the trial. So let's go back to 1993. On Monday the 26th of April, 12 jurors were sworn in. And what was to become a mammoth trial began. One newspaper report said that Ellis wore dark trousers and a jacket and showed no emotion as he listened to the charges against him being outlined by Brent Stanaway. The charges covered attempted sexual intercourse, indecent touching and oral sex. For the deposition, Peter Ellis faced 45 charges against 20 children, but by the end of the pre-trial process, he was facing 28 offences against nine girls and four boys, so 13 children. Of the children who were included in the depositions but didn't feature in the trial, the charges relating to two of them were dismissed at depths. Another child had been named as a complainant but hadn't made any disclosures. Two were withdrawn by their parents and the Crown decided not to proceed with the others. What on earth was going on here? Well, in the years since the trial, Peter Ellis and his supporters have argued that the Crown weeded out some of the most outlandish claims made by the Crest children, things that would have been hard to prove, maybe even hard to imagine. For example, 16 of the charges relating to the Circle incident were whittled down to just one. Now remember the Circle incident was the one where the paedophiles danced in a circle while the children were forced to kick each other in the genitals. Kinda hard to prove and potentially distracting for the jury. After depositions, the Crown also ditched any allegations of penetration by Ellis. Ten sexual violation charges were eliminated or reduced. This move explains away the lack of injuries. But it's only part of the story. Not all of the bizarre claims were removed. The jury still got to hear some pretty graphic stuff. For this next little bit, we'll lay out the charges that did make it to the High Court and we'll be using everyday language. Now, if you don't want to hear these details, you can skip ahead about a minute. Later, the children were put down a trapdoor and in an oven. 
of the 28 charges, there were 14 of indecent assault. A boy claims Alice urinated on him 800 times. These were claims including Peter urinating on children at the creche, or in one case, putting a sandwich on a girl's anus. A boy says Alice and others took children to a graveyard and put them in coffin-like boxes. There were 10 charges of doing or inducing a child to do an indecent act, including getting the children to touch his penis or making one have a bath with him. A girl says she and Peter Alice had a bath together. Plus various different accusations that Alice touched the children's genitals. A girl says she bled after Peter Alice pricked her bottom with a sewing needle. Three of the charges were of sexual violation and one of attempted sexual violation, which included trying to have sex with one girl and putting his penis in the mouths of other children. Others being abused and says Alice gave her an ice block to keep quiet. They were warned they'd be killed if they told. The Crown said the offending took place between 1986 and 1992 and happened at various locations, the creche and an unknown address. Peter was also accused of abusing children while babysitting them, once at the child's own home and once at his own flat in Hereford Street. Now, as we've said before, this case really hinges on the believability of the children. According to Lindley Hood's book, in his opening address, Brent Stanaway explained away many of the concerns around the children's evidence. He suggested the interviewer's prolonged questioning was fine because when children say, I don't know or can't remember, they want a question repeated. He said the tendency for children to disclose more and more at successive interviews was because they'd suppressed their traumatic memories. Stanaway also addressed contradictions in the children's testimony, saying little kids have difficulty with concepts of time and numeracy, and they sometimes confused what had happened to them and when. But let me emphasise here, these were really young kids. At the time of the trial, the youngest was only four and the oldest only nine. This brings us to the bits now that the Crown left out entirely. Bart said that Peter drove a black Toyota with the words effing shit scratched on the outside with a putty knife. And that was a good story. Of course, <laughs> Peter didn't drive to start off, and so therefore that was a, that never ever came up in the charges. Or There were a multitude of things that the kids said didn't come up in the charges because they were just ridiculous. That's Debbie's mother, and she's using a pseudonym for one of the complainants, as all the children and their families have permanent name suppression. Her point about some of what the children said not making it to court is important. In pre-trial applications, the Crown had successfully argued that the jury should only see those parts of the kids' interviews that were relevant to the charges. Now, that meant many of the more extreme allegations were left out. That comes from the decision on the Friday before we started on the Monday that not all the tapes were to be played. Rob Harrison tells me, And so we started going through a process of saying this tape can be played, this tape can't, this tape will be played, this tape can't. But we ran out of time. So um, each day that a new set of tapes was coming, if we wanted to play something, we would have to argue for that to be played before we got into the court, uh, before it could be played. Of those 50-plus interviews done with the complaining children, only about 20 were relied on by the Crown. And Stanaway urged the jury to disregard anything confusing. He said, and I quote, The Crown has elected to proceed on some of those allegations, but not all of them. It is important that you look at what are the allegations the Crown relies on and whether or not you accept the child's evidence as regards those allegations. 
If you do accept that evidence, the Crown has proved its case. It need not matter at the end of the day whether you accept or reject all the other matters the children refer to. This is something that, after all these years, still really worries Sir Graham Pankhurst, the now retired judge. Rob Harrison, of course, had been intent at trial in getting the full picture to the jury. How could you defend Peter Ellis of allegations from uh, complainant A that um, she or he had been abused by Peter Ellis in particular circumstances unless you had the ability to look at the full picture? How was that child first interviewed? And then what, crucially, did they say at interview and in response to what sort of questions and so on? Yet uh, the trial judge seemed to think that it was quite acceptable that the Crown could be the, the agency that made the decision about what was played and what was not played by the jury. And it seemed to me that that was fundamentally wrong. Surely a defence counsel, as of right, could say, if you're going to have recorded evidence, I want all of it, not just the cherry-picked pieces that you want played, so that the Crown was in a position and did uh, exclude the most bizarre of the allegations uh, and minimise things to their own advantage. Rob Harrison said the daily decisions over what would be shown meant there was no time to prepare transcripts for the jury. And we just didn't have the resources to get 15 copies of what the judge said we could play or could not play available to a jury in the time that we had from when it was to be played. So we ended up playing little bits of tape and the jury's thinking, what the fuck, what's this? For the first three weeks of the trial, bits of the video interviews were played and the 13 complainant children and their parents appeared in court to give their evidence. When the children were testifying, they were actually in the room next door, giving the evidence by video link. The court had been cleared of everyone except those legally allowed to be there, and the children could see the lawyers asking them questions, but they couldn't see Peter Ellis. The children were only allowed to have one support person present, usually a parent, but that person wasn't supposed to communicate with them. And then in that little side room, there was one more person who could oversee proceedings. Now, Graham Pankhurst actually tells me about talking to one of those people. She had been there in the room where the children gave evidence from. And at some point, she made some disclosures to me, just essentially that she was perturbed at the way things were conducted in that room where they were to give the evidence, the extent of the coaching and so on that went on. She just simply said that she was uneasy about it, that um, it bothered her seeing what was going on in the background. I know at least two of, from what I understood, two of the court staff had to have um, therapy and it wasn't anything to do with what they heard, it was to do with the way I was treated in court. In a 1993 interview with investigative reporter Melanie Reid, Peter Ellis discussed the children's credibility. For example, one child sat there and her answer was, it's true, it's true, it's true, it's true, when asked, you know, did this happen? She didn't variate the word at all, uh, the, the sentence. It's just, it's true, it's true, it's true. Children do not 
keep trotting out the same sentence unless they've been coached. But cross-examining the children was difficult, in part because Peter Ellis had asked his lawyer Rob Harrison to be gentle. What I didn't want Rob Harrison to do was to question the children in interviews, like as in, in trial, hard, because I mean, I used to say, I'm a childcare worker. He was really clear that he didn't want me to um, demonise them or uh, hammer them mercilessly. I mean, I knew it was possible to cross-examine those kids in such a manner that they would um, uh, possibly flip their story to say it didn't happen, right, because they were scared of this angry person. You could do that, but could you do it for 13? I'm doubtful. And the other thing is, as soon as the nice man came back on, <laughs> would they change their story back again? So um, if you don't flip them, all you're doing is making them look even stronger. So what do you do? How do you, how do you handle this? And, that, and the handling is try and elicit from them what's happening in their lives if, as much as we could. Uh, as, and that's, that's not easy. Um, and that's the, the approach we took. We were trying to get the children to tell us about who had been talking to them about this, that and the other thing, who they were seeing, those sorts of things. Trying to get all those little threads together. But it was still really tough for these wee children. Four-and-a-half-year-old Francis Pine initially refused to speak, finally being coaxed to by the judge, who asked if she could talk like a big girl, like his sister. After establishing she understood the difference between truth and lies, Crown lawyer Brent Stanaway asked whether Peter had done wheeze on her in the crash toilets. She said it never happened. Rob Harrison applied to have Peter Ellis discharged on that count, and it was granted. Justice Williamson told the jury, and I quote, Today she said to you in evidence, all of those things were wrong. Or, perhaps more correctly, she has just not been capable of giving evidence about these matters in this court. In her book, A Mother's Story, Bart's mother writes about her son, who would have been six or seven at the time, having to give evidence. She came up with her own pseudonyms, but we're sticking with the ones we've been using for consistency's sake. So this is Ms Dogwood. We've had an actor read her words. The day that Bart was to be called was cold and overcast. He seemed relaxed about what lay ahead, but he also took a lot of care over his appearance, spending a long time looking in the mirror to check that not a hair was out of place and fussing with his shoes and laces. Bart chose his older brother to be his support person. Bart seemed focused and businesslike and rebuffed our attempted hugs as he left us. Bart gave evidence in short blocks over two days. Bart coped very well and he remained honest, clear and articulate. But his mother could see the questioning was taking its toll. I was quite shocked when I saw Bart. He was deathly pale and he looked exhausted. And no wonder. I thought... It must have been an ordeal answering question after question for so long. He said little except that he wanted to get out of the place and to go to the Park Royal and eat a huge ice cream and lolly pudding. He did exactly that. The parents generally testified either directly before or after their children. Two fathers and ten mothers gave evidence, including Ms Dogwood. I immediately got the impression that Robert Harrison was not only trying to trick me by his questions and to get the jury to see me as an over-concerned parent who'd planted ideas in her son's head, 
but that he actually disliked me. But through it all, I did not find his questions and insinuations difficult to counter. The main thrust of the parents' evidence was about their experiences with Peter Ellis and the creche and their children's health and behaviour. One of the parents had complained about child having a red bottom. Rob Harrison is questioning this woman and I said to Murray, the toilet paper. Debbie's mum sat through 11 weeks of debts for her daughter. But she and her husband Murray also sat through Peter's trial for the many twists and turns. Now, <laughs> at the Civic, they had boxes of Jay's toilet paper, which was leaflets that you pulled out. Terrible stuff. It wasn't absorbent or anything. And I rubbed some on my arm, you know, in her arm, and it all came up red. It's terrible, terrible stuff. I said, that's what it was. I said, it was the toilet paper. I left the court, <laughs> rushed home up here, got the packet of toilet paper, rushed back to court, put it in a in a brown paper bag and we got it handed to Rob. And he held it up and he said, would this toilet paper uh, irritate a child's bottom or a child's, you know, that area? And she said, yes, never heard any more about the toilet paper after that. Mm. I felt like something out of a TV, you know, crime <laughs> series. <laughs> Doing our best. Mm. And just like a TV crime series, the media would pore over what had happened in court every day. Ms Dogwood wasn't overly impressed with some of that coverage. In the morning, I pounced on the press and turned to the court pages. Quite a bit of space was given to Bart's evidence, but I thought I detected a bias towards throwing the best light on the way the defence had cast doubt on it. Later, I discovered that some parents and even grandparents of complainant children felt the same way. Some even cancelled their subscriptions to the paper. Not unsurprisingly, she was unhappy about the papers highlighting the holes the defence poked in the Crown case. But there were some holes. Things like one girl confusing the crash with her school and another admitting that her mother asked leading questions. We've already heard how one count against Peter was discharged early on in the trial after the youngest complainant said he hadn't weed on her. Well, another two charges relating to a different girl were also discharged when she took the stand. During cross-examination, the child admitted having been prompted by Cathy Crawford, one of the social workers who interviewed the children back in 1992. We've had some actors read from the court transcript. Can you remember the first two tapes you made with Cathy? We first learnt about all the things Peter did, and then we came back on the screen and did it. Who taught it to you before you came on the screen and did it? Cathy, and she told me what Peter did. After this... Justice Williamson questioned the girl himself and decided that these charges should be dropped. This was a massive trial. It was big and it was complex and the public interest in it was huge. And of course, life just carries on. A couple of weeks before the trial, Harrison found out his mother had terminal cancer. I went to her doctor and said, look, what's the story? Is, is she, you know, how much time does she have? because I'm going to go into this case and, and if there's a chance, any chance that she's not going to be there through that, I can't, I can't do this case. And he says, oh, I don't know, Christmas, yeah, at least Christmas, you've got you know, plenty of time. And I said, look, you, you've got to be absolutely certain about this. 
So, uh, you know, my mother and I sat down and we planted Christmas lilies in my garden um, uh, with a view to her still being there at the end of the end of the year. And then part way through the trial, she just she just nosedived very very quickly. Um, yeah, so it was uh, it was very harsh. We stopped for a week. Um, just when it was obvious it was a matter of 24 hours or so. But Peter Ellis remembers even that being a bit touch and go. Rob's mother died and um, Williamson was going to make Siobhan McNulty one year out of law school carry on. Well, Rob had some bereavement leave or funeral stuff. I mean, even the court staff were upset about that. Although the circumstances were awful, this was an opportunity for Peter's defence team to have a bit of a stop take. Harrison says he talked to Peter about taking a step back, handing over the trial to a new counsel. But says Ellis reinforced his belief that he was doing all right, so they marched on. In the next episode of Conviction, Peter Ellis takes the stand. I just recall when he was on the stand and, and Stanaway was trying to make him say that the children were lying and he wouldn't, they weren't telling the truth, but they weren't lying. Mm, but he loved the kids. And then the jury decides. I've got to place my life in the hands of 12 people and I could end up with a guilty verdict and I'm not. Thanks for listening to Conviction, the Christchurch Civic Crash Case, hosted by Ellie Jones and Alexander Beezer. Conviction was made by Monsoon Pictures International, with support from RNZ and New Zealand On Air. The series was written and produced with help from Aliki Siantolis, Liz Garten and Tim Watkin. Blair Stagpool was the audio engineer. Voice actors in this episode are Jane Robertson, Leonard Powell and Brianna Uritich. Thanks go out to RNZ's commissioning team, Kay Elmers and Tim Burnell, for giving this project the green light, and to Hing Yi Kong for designing the webpage. And to Nataonga Sound and Vision for help with some of the archival audio, as well as MediaWorks Discovery, Getty Images, TVNZ, and the Livingston Family Trust. The key image for the series is courtesy of North and South. Conviction can be found on the podcast page of the RNZ website. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Follow the series so you don't miss an episode. 